0: Ever since mankind's exile from Eden, we've been trying to control the universe. For years, you've heard people invoke the phrase universe in different ways around us. Maybe in a movie, maybe you've read about it in a book, or you have friends who speak this way. But they want some kind of outside help. They're looking for something they're hoping for, and they want the universe to give it to them. And so they want to send out positive energies, they want to give out good vibes, and the universe will respond to give them the things they seek. They just need to really imagine it, like in the theater of their mind, really visualize it in detail, and then they can count on the universe being on their side. The universe will give them good things because of what they have sent out into the universe first. And apparently the universe loves to receive good vibes. Ever since mankind's exile from Eden, we have been trying to control the universe. And these modern ways of using our words to control the world is just a dressed up version of an ancient problem of man trying to be God. And we don't control the world with our words. And your vibes do not control reality. And the universe is not responding to you with positive things because you sent positive thoughts to it first. Psalm 29 wants you to focus on words. Not your words. Not your voice. Not your voice that shapes the world, but the voice of the Lord. Foundational to a biblical worldview is the Godness of God around and before and beneath all things, whose word shapes the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. If there is a voice to exalt in all the earth, it is not ours, it is the voice of the Lord. This is the kind of psalm that orients our hearts. Because this psalm directs us to the greatness and glory of God. This psalmist writes with lament in psalms we have seen. He is afflicted and suffers much. Psalm 29 is not a psalm of lament, however. It stands distinct. It's actually a psalm where you don't find a single petition like the other psalms. Except at the very end... May the Lord give strength to His people. This is not primarily a lament or petitioning psalm. It is a psalm of praise. And we know that this writer, David, you flip back through psalms and look at the enemies that surround him, the sins that ensnare him, the grief that he experiences, David writes Psalm 29 as a soul-orienting psalm. Where shall his heart and mind be fixed? Upon the one whose voice is full of majesty and power. There's no other voice worthy of our heart's delight and our soul's treasure but God. And in this psalm, it is a beautiful depiction of a storm Storms are mighty, not just in their power, but in the awe-striking beauty they can have. They can do untold damage, yes. But if you've sat far enough away from a storm, and I don't mean just on your front porch, but maybe you can even tell on the weather, the, the, the various distance between you and something grand and epic unfolding in the heavens... And the power of those clouds and that thunder and that rain. What I want you to imagine in your mind this morning is David in Psalm 29 visualizing the thunderous power of a storm being described to depict the power and majesty of God. Because nature is not just running on its own. Biblically, the God of heaven and earth makes and sustains the world that he has made. In Psalm 29, David doesn't just look at this storm and say, well, then isn't that interesting? Look at that rain. Look at those waters. Look at those clouds. Hear that thunder. For David, he must praise the power of God whose words direct the world. In Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, he calls for praise to the Lord to be given. He addresses... The heavenly beings. Not because David doesn't think that those on earth should also praise the Lord. But these heavenly beings, these angels, are made by God for the praise of God, just like God's image bearers. He says in Psalm 29, 1 and 2, that these in the heavens should praise the Lord. Now, of course they do. It's David, if you will, resonating with this exhortation, with what they already desire to do as heavenly creatures, to praise and honor God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. I asked my children last night, I said, what does ascribe mean? And they said, oh, well, ascribe is someone who writes things down. And I said, you're absolutely right. But this is a verb, and the A is connected to the word scribe. This is different altogether. And so we have to just think, what does it mean to ascribe? It means to give or to, be, to treat something as if it belongs to. To ascribe to the Lord Glory and strength is to say, Lord, this belongs to you. This is due you. It doesn't belong to us, but strength and glory belong to you. And so we want to praise you and exalt you in worship. For you, O oh God, are worthy of glory and strength. Giving God glory is not giving us something he lacks. Glorifying God is to declare his worthiness. He is intrinsically Full of majesty and glory. We're not increasing something about God as if He's deficient. Instead, in verse 1, ascribing to the Lord is to treat these things as rightly belonging to God, for inherently they are all His majesty and glory and power and wonder. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, and the glory in verse 2 do His name. There is a worthiness in the concept of worship that we have to think through as believers. Why is it that we are called to praise the Lord? It has to do with the worthiness of God. When we celebrate the goodness of something that we've read or watched, some great landscape that we see that moves us deeply, and we want to talk about it openly, we believe that our words are in some way trying to correspond to this good and beautiful thing that has entranced us and moved us within. To think about who God is from His Word is to learn of His great character and faithfulness, to behold a saving goodness and steadfast love towards sinners. And the Bible teaches throughout all of these things that all that God is and all that God does goes to reinforce His worth. When we praise the Lord or ascribe glory to the Lord, it is due His name. In worshiping the Lord, we're not doing something out of sync from or or out of proportion with God's name. Rather, we're seeking to declare what is rightly due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Verses 1 and 2 is a call to praise the Lord. And splendor of holiness is is a phrase that is about garments of holiness. David is writing this in the days where there had been a tabernacle that preceded him and a temple in Jerusalem that would follow him that would be built by his son Solomon. And temples and tabernacle before it were mediated at by priests. And priests were dressed a certain way. They were dressed in holy attire. That's another way you could translate this in verse 2. Worship the Lord in holy attire. It's a way of talking about the holiness of the priests. And they had garments that were distinct from the, early, from the other Israelites around them. And their, their particular role in the way that they appeared was to demonstrate the work they were involved in. It was about the holy things of God. And so in other words, they were living and acting and working as though set apart for God because of His holiness. That idea of the priests is ascribed or, or attributed to the responsibility of the angels. And I think deriving from this heavenly beings activity that David calls them to ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength and worship. We would derive from that our good and right responsibility to worship the Lord with the glory due his name in the splendor of holiness. In other words, God is holy and we are set apart to be holy. We are those clothed with the righteousness of God. He's our refuge and therefore as a holy people we worship him. We don't do so with hearts seeking to pursue as the treasure of our souls the things that are not God. But rather the splendor of holiness, if you will, a soul that is dressed in a manner fitting, knowing God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, these things. This is about worship. It is about majesty. It is about the glory of God. This is heart reorienting because there are things in this world... That beckon your heart's allegiance. And that want you to live for those things. And to make that what drives you. And to say if you would just pursue this and give your heart to this it will satisfy. But it won't. Because you were made to know God. And God is not those other things. He may give you responsibilities to faithfully steward those things. For though his glory and his honor above all. That the glory of God and the worship of God would be the thing that you pursue with the wholeness of your heart. For this is what you were made for. Verses 1 and 2 calls the heavenly beings to join in the celebration of God's glory and power. Now what is it that prompts David to think about the strength of God? What is it that makes God's power or strength evident? Fearsome things that happen in the world, like in powerful storms that mankind cannot control. In verses 3 through 9, the power of the Lord's voice is correlated here with the voice of God over the waters, and there is a movement here I want you to notice. It begins over the waters in verse 3. Do you see that? Over the waters, and then the same voice is spoken about in verse 5. In verse 5, there's language of Lebanon, the cedars or the trees of Lebanon, those cedar trees. And in verse 6, Lebanon is mentioned again, skipping like a calf. And then the word Syrian, you could also see this as it's the same as Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon or Syrian is mentioned again. If you look at a map of the Bible land, the Mediterranean Sea is immediately west of the land of Israel, but north of Israel is Lebanon. And east of Lebanon is Sirion or Mount Hermon. And there's also a wilderness in verse 8 called the wilderness of Kadesh in that same region. The book of Numbers speaks about Kadesh Barnea, a wilderness south of the promised land. This is not that one. This is one north of the promised land. Here's what David seems to have in mind. It's a movement of a storm. From the waters into Lebanon... Over Mount Hermon and a corresponding wilderness north of Israel called Kadesh. David is describing the power of God as he watches something unfold in nature before him. And the voice of God stirs the sea. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. That's what David says. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over many waters. We know that the Bible is very interested in the voice of God. We know that the Israelites encountered the power of God's voice at Mount Sinai. In fact, when they encountered his powerful voice, it was as thunder and fire and smoke on the mountain, if you read Exodus 19. It was a majestic voice of God. In fact, it was a voice that made them tremble. When he finished reciting the Ten Commandments to them, they begged that he would speak to them no more. So mighty was his voice. They had backed away from the mountain. Given the sheer power and majesty of the living God. At the very beginning of the Bible, and I mean like page one, we see the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. And by the very power of God's speech, he makes and shapes and forms and fills the world that has been made for his glory. The Bible opens with the powerful voice of God, and David knows that God has not stopped speaking in that sense. He governs his creation. David sees what's happening over the waters, and it's as if the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord, the God of glory, thunders the Lord over many waters. Now you might have been in situations where you grab a chair and you go to your uh, area in the front of your house and you're watching some storm far away from you and you look at that lightning and that thunder. You've probably also been in some storms where you've said, I'm not going outside no matter how much you pay me. In fact, that storm is so near and so fearsome, I'm going to go to this particular room or this area of a basement because I know what the power of a storm is like. David knows. In the ancient Near East... We know that the Israelites entered a promised land, a land of Canaan, where there were Canaanites who praised a god of the storm they called Baal. Baal was their storm god. He was the god of lightning and thunder. He was the god who gave them rain. And they needed to please Baal and manipulate Baal in order to get Baal to act on their behalf. In fact... When David says that the voice of the Lord here is over the waters and then he moves to Lebanon and Syrian in this area. All of that area of God's thunderous voice is the area where Baal was worshipped as the storm god. And this is significant for the ancient readers because what we should connect is that Psalm 29 is David's way of saying there is no Baal. Who is it that thunders and who is it that is the God of glory? It is Yahweh. It is not Baal. Baal's not a god. Baal does not exist. The God of Glory thunders. It's His voice that's over the waters, and that these pagans in the uh, north of the land of Israel might praise Baal for what He has given. Baal has never heard anything they've ever said. He has no ears to hear, eyes to see, or hand to help. But there is the living God whose voice is over the waters, and in verse five, we're told that He breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Oh, when storms come true that cause trees to fall down, we're talking about mighty winds and rains. We're talking about the power of storm, And in Lebanon, these cedars were treasured. Yes, Lebanon's reputation was the mighty, majestic cedar trees. If you were looking at your household in the land of Israel, you said, "We would like to use some very nice wood. Where can we go?" Well, the cedar trees of Lebanon were a go-to place. You'd get on Amazon, or you would have, and you would, you, would, you would look at how much these things are and where you could acquire them. These cedar trees were beautiful and powerful. And you should also know the religious associations with the trees of Lebanon. As one commentator described it, there were forests of Lebanon considered sacred to the gods of the Canaanites. Because it was believed these forests provided the construction of the dwellings of the gods. It's interesting that the Lord breaks these trees. I think not only to demonstrate His power, but to demonstrate that He is God and God alone. He wrecks their houses. In verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. So even... The strongest, tallest trees were as nothing before the voice of God. He lays them low. In fact, Lebanon, full not only of trees, but of mountains like Sirion or Mount Hermon here in verse 6. It's as if these mountainous regions are so shaken to their very foundations that they are displaced. Lebanon skipping. Well, Lebanon is not a person. But an animating act is being given to this region of mountains. And the only way you're going to get mountains to move is if something so deep and so powerful at the very core dislodges them. And what he's saying here is the voice of the Lord is what can quake the mountains. The voice of the Lord is what brings the thunderous power that these regions have seen. He makes Lebanon move like a calf skipping. Or Mount Hermon or Sirion skipping like a young wild ox. David is trying to describe what's happening here with mountains and regions and waters as highlighting the power and voice of God. And then in verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This is likely the image of lightning. Not just the God of glory thundering and bringing power over the waters and felling these trees, but also flames of fire. It makes us think about Elijah's story in First Kings eighteen. In First Kings eighteen, the worshippers of Baal were present, and the worshippers of Baal believed Baal was the God of lightning and thunder. Even images of Baal from the ancient Near East depicted Baal as having thunderbolt in his arm or in his hand, and other. Gods and myths of the ancient Near East depicted things besides Baal as overseeing the storm. Baal was worshipped by those Canaanites and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 contend with Elijah. And Elijah says, well let's build an altar for you and I will build an altar for me. And we will call upon the gods we worship and the God who answers by fire, that's the real God. It's a tremendous story. And in 1 Kings 18, the inadequacies of the pagan Canaanite deities and worshippers is on full display. There is no answer by fire from the heavens when they call upon Baal. And Elijah calls upon the Lord who answers by fire because the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Lightning doesn't belong to Baal. It belongs to God. And it is not the gods of the ancient Near East or Lebanon or Syrian or any of those territories that control thunders and power. It is the voice of God that's over the waters and the wilderness. In verse 8, the wilderness is highlighted as well. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. All of this area north of the promised land. It's not out of God's jurisdiction. He's the maker of heaven and earth. So you have this powerful movement of a storm. And then in verse 9... The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Making the deer give birth is likely deer who were pregnant and now are panicked because of the storm. That's what I think we're to imagine here. In verse 9, this fearsome activity. Here you have creatures in nature they are with with the child so to speak right voice of the lord makes the deer give birth meaning that they can be so scared and panicked that they're giving birth before they were counting on it the voice of the lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare we're to imagine this powerful devastation that david knows can happen in the world in which he lives verses 3 through 9 have been describing then this storm that moves from the waters to the north of Israel. And David says, Behold the power of God, His mighty words, and His unrivaled majesty. So what does the end of verse 9 read with? And in His temple, all cry glory. And in verses 1 and 2, we were told Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, glory. There's the word, glory and strength. In verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. We're to remember that by the time we get to verse 9. Because what, is, what does everyone in the temple do? They cry, or they ascribe to him, glory. Glory be to God for his power, and his majesty, and his transcendent might. This temple might be referring to the same kind of sanctuary-like dwelling place where the heavenly beings are in verses 1 and 2. We know that every constructed dwelling place, the tabernacle and later the temple, were reflections on earth of larger heavenly realities. The presence of the Lord can be thought of like temple, a temple-like reality. In um, Revelation 21 and 22... We're told that in the New Jerusalem, there is no physical temple. For God and the Lamb is His temple. And the glory of God will be the light. It's a way of reminding us that the presence of God, dwelling place, worship, all of these are temple ideas. Well, the angels of heaven worship the the living God. It's as if they are in a temple. So in His temple, what do we hear these heavenly beings on high proclaim? Well, exactly what the shepherds did. Think of Matthew chapter 2, or Luke chapter 2, wrong gospel. In Luke chapter 2, the shepherds in a field by night are watching their sheep, and the angels declare what is God's plan in their very midst, that a Savior has been born. And they cry out, glory to God on the highest. They pray for peace. Here all in His temple cry out, glory. This is the response to the power and majesty and name of God. It's to be a worshiper of the living God. That's what this is. So we have a fork in the road that we face as God's image bearers. We have been made by God to know Him, to exalt Him, to give praise to His name that our words and lives would be lived for His glory and that we would be like those, like these heavenly beings in the the heavenly places who cry out glory to God, that we would respond that way. It is the glory due His name. The other path is the path of folly and rebellion. To know that glory is due His name, and that we have been created to be worshippers of the living God, to know Him and to give praise to God with our words and life, but to say, no, I will be God of my reality. I will do what I want. I will pursue what I want. It will be my heart's desire, and that is what I will live for. I do not care about the glory of God. Psalm 29 is pressing upon us the majesty and power of God that we might be like those in the heavenly places who cry out to God, glory to you, God. Glory to you, God. So David's exhortation to us, just like to those heavenly beings, would be to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That we would praise God and honor God and trust in God and look to God as our refuge. And we most worship what our heart has found refuge in. And the pressing need upon our hearts is for us to consider whether our heart's refuge is in God. That we will look to Him and trust Him because what we exalt and what we worship is what we have found refuge in for our souls. May it be the Lord. It is something. May it be the Lord. All in His temple cry out, Glory! For it is not Baal that is God who holds the thunders and the flashes of fire. It is Yahweh. One writer says, The glory of God rests on all of His creation. Sky, sea, land, wilderness. The glory of God over His creation and things that He has made. We have heard about this so far in Psalms already. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so what's the, the right heart response in what the heavens declare? The right heart response is, then glory be to God. We want to worship His name in the splendor of holiness. Not only Psalm 19, but Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. In all the earth. Not just in Lebanon. Not just in Syria. You can see glory there. And power there. But throughout all the earth. How majestic is your name? So the Psalms already have pointed us to the majesty and glory of God in creation. David's doing it again. In Psalm 29. In the ministry of Jesus. There's a scene in John chapter 12. He says... Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And John tells us the crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Because the voice of the Lord and the God of glory thunders in majesty, not just in the storm of the sea. But we think about the Old and New Testament where God has made himself known in such power. That people think of powerful manifestations and glorious demonstrations that can only remind us of powerful storms and imagery like that. In Psalm 29, we rejoice that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars and the cedars of Lebanon. Because it demonstrates His power and His strength. And we as sinners need that power and strength. God gives lightning and He gives thunder, and it's not just in nature. Just as Psalm 19 celebrated the glory of God and the power of God in creation, He demonstrates in Psalm 19 that the Word of God that designs creation and displays His glory also sends forth His Word. Psalm 19 is about both. Consider the relevance of this for Psalm 29 the power and majesty of glory and glory of god is not just in god's general revelation of creation but in the special revelation of his word in his word we behold the thunders and lightnings of god when charles spurgeon preaches from psalm 29 in the 1800s he says oh when you hear the gospel preached the god of glory is thundering that's what you're hearing You're watching Him quake human hearts and the Lebanon mountain ranges and the Mount Hermon regions are as nothing compared to God who shakes and moves and brings sinners to life. Behold His thunders and lightnings. He shakes souls and He brings down strongholds and He brings strength where there was none. We're told in verses 10 and 11 about the reign of the Lord. R-E-I-G-N We've thought about a different kind of rain earlier, but now his majesty, his enthronement. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. In verse 10, where is God in this mighty storm? The answer is always enthroned over it. That's never not the answer. Where is God when this storm comes over the waters, goes into the northern part of what's above Israel, hits these mountain ranges, and fells the mighty cedars? Where is He? He's enthroned. And friend, we wouldn't want it any other way. He's enthroned. He is reigning over all heaven and earth in unrivaled majesty and glory. In verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The flood here would be a picture of what would be the result of that mighty voice over the waters bringing all of that into the land, right? And then you see here a word that is used not just in Psalm 29, but in only one other passage in the Bible. It's in the beginning of Scripture. The flood in Noah's day. In Genesis 6-9, to the only other uses of this particular word translated here as flood is a flood where even in the days of Noah, His majesty and power and authority were on display. They ought to fear the Lord. They ought to love the Lord. They ought to turn from their sin. But instead, in Genesis 6-9, to the power of God and the mighty flood and deluge from above and from beneath the depths highlighted widespread wickedness in the land. They should fear the Lord because he can break the cedars of Lebanon. They should turn from their wickedness because he, not Baal, has a voice over the waters that reigns over all of what we call nature. The Lord is enthroned over the flood. He is enthroned as king forever. That's the royal word. He is king forever. We asked earlier in Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? The Lord, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. And the idea of the gates needing to be lifted up and the doors moving appropriately so that the King of glory might come in. It was because of His majesty and might and victory. Worship Him. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. And ultimately the Lord Christ, we say. That the Lord Jesus is enthroned above heaven and earth. We want to say that Christ is with us and near us. Yes, we also say. And not contradicting the first part of that sentence. That Christ is enthroned. Where is Christ? With us, near us, and enthroned in all heaven and earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the proclamation. I'm really glad, however, the psalm doesn't end with verse 10. It is wonderful. It is fearsome. The glory due to God. The power of God over the waters. How the storms display majesty. And God enthroned as king forever. Verse 11 is where the psalm ends. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Well, this is good news because if He's enthroned over the flood and He brings down the cedars, if He has this kind of power, then I should go to Him. If His voice is over the waters and He is reigning over the mountains of Lebanon and Syrian, then He can help me. So the psalmist says here in verse 11, May the Lord give strength to His people. We've seen the power of God and strength of God on display. The strength of God is not just displayed in what it can do to the trees. The strength of God is displayed in how He helps His people. His steadfast love and faithfulness. May the Lord give strength to His people. I'm so glad Psalm 29 didn't stop with verse 10. Because God is not only glorified in His majesty and power, but in His trustworthiness and faithfulness to love and help us. May the Lord bless His people with peace. And if there's anything you want after a storm, it's calm. It's peace. The word peace is the last word of the whole psalm. And it's quite striking that that's the last word, given the natural upset of things we've seen earlier of the voice of the Lord. With the rain and the thunder and the lightning and the cedar trees, peace. May He bless His people with peace. Oh, David is highlighting that God is the strength of His people and He prays for strength to come. He's a God of great power. When we look at this, it orients our hearts for worship because we realize God is to be exalted and the God of this kind of power, He's my only hope. He's my only help. The disciples knew this. They were with Jesus on a boat one day. And the storm came upon the seas. They awoke Him up. The windstorm had arose. The waves were breaking into the boat. The boat is filling up. Jesus is on the cushion in the boat. They wake him and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke. And I just want you to listen to the voice of the Lord over the waters. Here it is. He says, Peace, be still. And the winds ceased. And there was a great calm. And they said, Who is this that the winds and the waves obey Him? Let's pray.